In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. the true life podcast we are here with the one and only david solomon the author of multiple books and potentially a new one coming out with someone whom he loves very much (laughs) (laughs) and today we're talking about mysticism mystics and metaphors last week we talked quite a bit about the idea of mysticism and i thought maybe today we would begin our journey on what it is the mystic is feeling what it is the mystic is is almost being inflicted by or what they're searching for and so but i did want to start out with a really cool definition about mysticism and this is from roger goldleaf mysticism as a word used broadly to describe a variety of at times overwhelming often life-defining experiences Encounters that give rise to fundamental fundamental shifts in how we sense the nature of both the universe and our own personal identity. And I thought that was a good jump off. Like, do you think that this idea of the mystic being being brought into a relationship with God is is that is that the nature of both the universe and our own personal identity is that what's happening there like what do you think's happening there when they when they come into contact well i I think the nature of it has has somewhat shifted um you know certainly for for the medieval mystics that we uh that we know so well their goal is is union with the divine but i think for the modern mind the the whole concept of what the divine is has has changed so significantly that it can really come to represent a, a great variety of things. I mean, you know, if, if you're reading, uh, you know, my favorite Carl Jung, I mean, it's about finding the self, right, and and understanding the self, and that's really so. It in many ways is more of a of an inward journey 
than an external one. Whereas I, I think the medieval mystics, the, the focus really is on the external because it's looking to God. I mean, all you have to do is look at medieval art and look at the depictions of these kinds of things. Um, to today, ironically, is the, uh, the, the, the date that Francis of Assisi apparently had his vision and, and received the stigmata from Jesus. And so if you look at the art depicting that event, I mean, it's all about an external relationship with, with God. Whereas I think today, more and more, we see it being about a, a look inward. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. I, it brings me to this idea of, it seems that most people have this dualistic idea of themselves or, you know, there's this, there's this dualistic nature we have. But it seems to me the mystics are like, or I think you said it in the in the previous sentence, is they, they see this oneness, this wholeness. Is that something that kind of runs through the the idea of mysticism? Well, I think I mean the mystics are are constantly dealing with the 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 mind body problem. Um, it's a constant, and that, and we see that going all the way back to I mean. Philo of Alexandria and and the 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 the, uh, the pre Judaic Greeks who were writing about this it, it's it's really kind of astonishing that we and we were talking about this last week I mean the 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 line from Carl Jung about it being sort of you know ridiculous to think that there's nothing more than the physical <laughs> and so there's always been I think this conflict between mind and body between the the the, the spiritual and the physical. Um, and I, and that seems to really uh, permeate just about every spiritual tradition that you come across, regardless of where it is on the globe. I mean, I, I've been reading recently, um, or rereading, uh, Mercia Eliad's little book, Images and Symbols. Yeah. And I mean, and he's talking about, you know, religions that run the gamut from traditional, so-called traditional, you know, Roman Catholicism to to religions of, of of the pygmies in in african jungles and the ways that there are so many similarities of course what what jung would call archetypal connections but really underlying so much of that is this ongoing conflict that we have because intellectually i think many of us and many of us who think along these lines think about our spiritual nature and not our physical one and in many ways look at the physical nature as getting in the way of the spiritual it's it's in some way it's it's a it's an obstacle that has to be dealt with and um we see that in 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 the writings of, of a lot of the mystics who write about the the, the problems that they have with sin um that those are physical desires and and yearnings that they would much rather dispel but they can't because we're physical beings that's the nature of who we are so there's so much right there that makes me think there seems to be a pattern in the majority of mystical and mystics that i have read and the ideas of mysticism and it's this idea of suffering and if you i was reading a little bit about uh, simone vey and she talked about how suffering was almost when she was closest to God. And it's almost like God dwells within you or this being or whatever it is you want to call this encounter. 
is manifesting itself in you when you're suffering. And if, if you look at those that suffered, like Francis of Assisi, even when they're suffering and they're in pain, they're not really like they're still evangelizing. They're still going out and doing the work. And yeah. I, I wonder if it's that conflict that you had brought up about the body and the mind that causes that suffering. And somehow this power, is, you're trying to overcome it, that causes that suffering. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems to me that with, with some of the writers, the the infliction of, of physical suffering is there in order to edify the, the spiritual nature of their being. So if, if you, you know, if you look at somebody like, um, oh, we mentioned Marjorie Kemp last week, um, you know, who experienced incredible physical suffering and, 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 and just went through awful pain. But it, it seems like the, the experience of that almost allowed her, her spiritual nature to be more freed up to commune with the, the the divine, to have that, you know, we we, we mentioned that word ecstasy and ecstasy yeah. being an uh, you know separation of of body out of body, and um, I think that's the goal. And and so the you know we we, we look at asceticism, right? Ascetic traditions, which is it, it basically to punish the physical body in order to edify the soul. Um, and that's very similar to what you're talking about is experiencing that suffering. Um, I mean, if you're going to walk around all day with a hair shirt on in hopes that it's going to bring you closer to God. But I mean, a lot of a lot of medieval monks, a lot of early Christians certainly did that. Um, I'm sure there are still people today who wear hair shirts. I don't know any personally, um, but I'm sure they exist. This brings up a really fascinating point I want to get into because. I, I think, like, previously we had said that while these people are suffering, at times they don't, they're still able to go on with their work. But think about what that does for the people around them that look at them. They go, wow, look at this person in so much pain and suffering, and they're continuing to work on. It's almost like, though, even though they're afflicted with this tragedy, it is a gift because it allows people to see them in a way that gives them strength. It reminds me of, like, 2 Corinthians where they say, I was born with a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. I asked the Lord to take it away from me. And in his infinite wisdom, I heard his voice say to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For in weakness, my power is made perfect. And it seems to me like that's what you're doing is you're setting an example. And that might be how you get to sainthood or become a mystic is that you deal with this infliction. But by dealing with it, you're preaching a message that may not be in words, but is communicated to those around you. Yeah, but there's also a danger there, isn't there? Of of, of pride and of of um, sort of being being accused in 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 modern parlance of of being a martyr, right? Is oh, you know, it, it's like the the person who comes to work regardless of how sick they are. Oh, isn't that <laughs> wonderful? You know, no, it's terrible. I mean, you know, we're actually now encouraging people and say, if you're sick, stay home for God's sakes. Um, <laughs> but I was just reading something this morning in, in Time Magazine last week that was talking about this very issue of the, the different ways that we perceive work and and what we do. And and the, it, the article was about the, 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 the trend that they're calling quiet quitting. Mm. Where people are basically saying, you know, I'm not going to work on the weekends. 
I'm not going to work, you know, 90 hours a week. I'm going to do my job and then I'm going to go home and live my life. And, um, of course, in our culture, we, we have tended to reward the, the, the overachiever, right? The type A is who just, uh, work, 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 work. And, and it's not necessarily a positive thing. So, um, so I, I, I do think there's a danger there, um, for the individual who is being looked at as the example, because in most cases, those people would be the same exact ones who would engage in extreme humility and, and downplay any special nature of, of, of their selves. I mean, that's what that's what the mystics did in the Middle Ages. I mean, you know, a, a lot of them refused to even record their their visions um, and only did so reluctantly eventually. Um, now, part of that may have been because they were worried about being um, stigmatized as, uh, and being accused of being, you know, crazy, um, which is which is was not uncommon. And of course, the, the treatment for that in the Middle Ages was was just horrible. It was ghastly. Um, essentially to, to, to drill a hole in your head to let the demons out um, because the concern was, was your soul, not your physical being. So if you died, oh, well, well we saved your soul. Yeah. Um, so I, I, but I, I think that in, in, in today's uh, world, and what a horrible phrase that is, my students will start essays with that and you say, hey, what does that mean? Um, but in, in, in the world in which we live in, I think there's a real issue with that. I mean, I, I personally have been struggling with a horrible headache for the last week and a half. I can't shake it. Uh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know where it's coming from. It's just, it's been persistent. And um, and I, I've worked every day. And a lot of my colleagues say, why don't you stay home? You know, and, and I guess I, I don't know why I don't stay home. Um, I mean, it's not that I think that I'm that special that I have to be at work. Part of it is just because I know if I stay at home, I'm just going to, what am I going to do at home? Um, that's not going to help. And it's not like I'm necessarily going to get better by doing that. But, um, so uh, that's a roundabout way of, of getting at people who are experiencing that kind of extreme suffering can certainly be viewed by others with a very positive um, perspective. But I just, I would worry about the dangers of that. About, I mean, you know, the, the whole ascetic movement, I mean, the, the church stopped that in, 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 the, in the 15th century by finally officially saying, you know, stop hitting yourself. I mean, people were, you know, flagell self-flagellation. And the whole idea was, well, you know, my body will suffer, my spirit will be edified and will become closer to God. And finally, the Catholic Church said, no, that can't be. Your body was created by God, too. It can't be evil. And that was the attitude. The body's evil, the spirit is good, and so I'll punish the body. Um, but they said, you know, that, that can't be. But nonetheless, we have such strange relationships between our physical and our spiritual slash intellectual selves that it's 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 oftentimes difficult to explain i mean i've been joking in the last 24 hours 
after two doctor's appointments yesterday that at 58, my warranties are starting to expire and they're calling in my parts, you know? Um, and, and you do sort of start to have this, this relationship with your physical self that um, is, is a battle or is at, le at least antagonistic um, that the, the mind and the body don't necessarily get along well. I, I think for some people are able to do that and I respect that they can if, if they're, if they're, they find that balance. I think for most of us, we don't. Yeah, I think it's 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 always moving. Like you know, it's so hard to find balance. It's always moving this way, or it's moving back. It's like a pendulum, and it's swinging yeah. back and forth. It yeah. brings to mind it brings to mind the idea of how some people can find themselves in tragedy, like say the loss of a loved one, and while they end up in a dark hole, they then come out of that hole and they something there grows and they become stronger or better. And then other people go, wow, this person, or I had a friend that's recently had a heart attack and he's making his way. And I can see that in a way he's been reborn because he mm. has this new lease on life. Yeah. But you know, that doesn't mean that people should go out and try to get a heart attack so they can right. have a new lease on life. Right. But it's, it's so difficult to transmit that lesson because everybody sees what happens and they see the, the repercussions of that event or the, the winnings or the, the, the things that may be good that come from that event as like, wow, well, if this thing just happened to me, then I can do it. I, I think you're getting the wrong message. And I could see how yeah. that would happen like that. Well, I mean, and, and it makes me think of when I have in the past taught um, about the problem of evil. Right. And, and for the and, and I mean, the problem of evil put simply is that that um, if God is all powerful, omnipotent all-knowing, omniscient, and benevolent, wanting good for his creation, why would evil exist? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And um, so, you know, you present these, these difficult philosophical quandaries where you say, you know, well, um, a tree fell on my house yesterday. And, and so if someone says, well, that was God's will, you know, that doesn't make you feel any better necessarily. And so I think part of it is just the, I mean, it comes back to what we talked about so long ago about this. It's the objective subjective thing, right? Yeah. It's how we perceive things. Um, I mean, you know, I, I was watching yesterday the queen, um, you know, lying in, in, in repose and in, in Scotland and, Everyone was making such a big deal about how her children stood around the around the coffin. I don't know if you saw that picture. Um, it was it was very it was a very affecting picture of the four of them standing there the way that they were honoring their their mother. But we don't know. I mean, what people are thinking and how they're feeling. Um, it, it's it's. You know, I mean, your, your your friend with the heart attack. It's it's we don't know what he's feeling, right? And and I mean, even if he tells you what he's feeling, it's not the whole story, right? Maybe he is feeling a new lease on life. Maybe not. Maybe it's just a scare. You know, it it, it we're just we're such confusing animals, aren't we? <laughs> we really are. It you know what it reminds me of. I forgot where this particular little story or limerick came from, but it's it's something along the lines of there's a small village 
back in the, the medieval times mm -hmm. and there's a, a young family there and, and they're working and all of a sudden a, a team of horses just comes from the, just comes from nowhere and it rides into this guy's farm and the neighbors are like, Oh gosh, you're so lucky. You have all these horses. Now you're like a rich man. And the guy's like, yeah, maybe. And then the son's out trying to break the horses and he falls and he breaks his leg and he might die. And they're like, Oh no, it's so horrible. You know, I can't believe this bad luck happened to you. And he's like, maybe. Then the next day, the military comes in and they, they take all the young men who are fighting age to go fight for the war. And they're like, oh, you're so lucky. Your son didn't have to go. And he's like, maybe. You know, it's just these, this idea of I think it boils down to this. And this is what I have found in my life is that in life, you cannot control what happens to you. But you and you alone get to control the meaning of that event. And there's real power in there because now you have the opportunity to see God's grace, or you got the ability to see that the divine spark resides within you and you can choose the meaning of that event. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, it is all about how you interpret what goes on. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it's Hamlet who says it's neither good or bad, but thinking makes it so, right? Yes. I mean, it, 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 nothing is good or bad objectively, he says. It's how we look at it. It's how we think about it. And, you know, again, going back to the problem of evil, you know, I mean, the, the, the earthquake in Lisbon, Lisbon, Portugal in 1759, which is, was a huge, huge event and was a turning point in the discussions about the problem of evil in, in the history of Western philosophy. You know, a lot of people looked at that and said, well, that was God's punishment for a decadent society. So he wiped them out by, you know, an earthquake. And... It, 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 it's 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 a question of obviously faith and what you believe, but it's also, as you say, it's sort of what your perspective is on it. And I, I love that, you know, maybe story. That's yeah. that, that's a great a great story because it it is true. I mean, we don't we don't necessarily control our own fate in every aspect because so much of what goes on on a daily basis involves interacting with the world around us and we don't control that but we can as you say control how we respond to it and how we view it and how we interpret it and um you know that brings us back to looking at things symbolically and thinking you know um what is it? You know, one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Um, you know, it's all how you look at it. Uh, now, you know, on one level, that sounds like a cop out, and it's it because it's it's it just is an easy way out because a rational mind wants to make sense of something and come up with a definitive answer, but there there may not necessarily be one, and we are uncomfortable with that fact that we can't explain everything. Um, and, and I think that's what causes us to continue to, to, uh, pursue the search. Yeah, I agree. And in some ways it, the way of thinking about that, you know, I, I often think of a, was it act four scene for a tale of sound and fury, completely devoid of any meaning, you know, like think about like when, when you get into a situation that may be a tragedy, some people get stuck there. And mm -hmm. then they self-flagellate, like, oh, God, I'm oh, so yeah. dumb. I can't believe I did. You know what? 
And then that just ruins their whole relationship with those they love because yeah. they're ruining that relationship with themselves. And I think that on some level, that might be one thing that we can learn from the mystics if we take it into the world in which we live today. In that event, if you look at an, a tragic event, an event that you had no control over, then you know you can use if you can see that as a mystic or a mysticism or or take from the mystics the idea that okay it's back to this oneness now i can decide what that event is i think you can i think there's a correlation there maybe yeah and and i i think that you know you're right i mean tragic events when they occur yeah. again it's about how we respond to them and how we how we how how or if we move forward from that right i mean it's it's very easy to just go down the rabbit hole and 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 not be able and not come out then, right? I mean, you just get mired in the the tragedy. And I think some of this has to do with, and I'm not a PhD in psychology. Um, some of this has to do with certainly the nature of our narcissistic um, temperament and and our and again the the lack of an ability to be objective. I mean, we all know people who are are just so stuck in their own world that they they can't see anything else. And um, gosh, those people are frustrating, aren't they? Um, you know, and you just want to you, you want to try to, but something, something I would argue that something triggered that, something led them to that that point. And if you could go back and trace that to find out, you know, what was the event, the the original um, incident that that caused them to become unable to view things from any other perspective other than from their own self-centeredness, um, it would be very, very interesting. Um, and I think that it is increasingly a, a quality of our time that people are led to that kind of um, subjective narcissism. Um, and I, I and I know it's easy to to use it as a crutch, but it, it, technology is doing a lot of it. Um, I mean, I, I'm around, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old kids every day here at the university. I've been doing this for a long time. And the way that they interact with their phones and then to watch the way that they badly interact with other human beings, it's really startling. Um, now, COVID made it worse, uh, much worse. And it's going to be a while before we can start to get out of this. But I'm just I, I, I find it curious that I will walk into a room, a classroom and there were 30 students sitting there before a class and nobody's talking to each other. They're all on their phones. I mean, literally no one's talking to each other. And it's like, what, 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 what's going on here? Um, what, what is happening to us? You know, it, 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 it's the fear that we're going to become robots. Well, you know, we may already be there in some ways. And, as I've written in, about in, in my work, I mean, I think so much of this comes down to discussions about what makes us human beings, what makes us human. 
Um, and whether that's, you know, an acknowledgement and understanding of sin or understanding a journey of the self, any of these things, it's about what is it that makes us human? And when you look at that, and then you look at the world around us, the way that it is developing, I'm, I'm quite honestly, I'm worried. Um, I'm really worried. I mean, it just, and, and, and at a really silly level, I mean, on some things, you know, you walk into a supermarket and there were fewer and fewer cashiers, everything is self-checkout. And you're like, oh, well, that's great, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, number one, what happened to the people who had those jobs? Number two, it now means that you no longer have to interact with other human beings. And a lot of people, when I say that, will say, yeah, good, I don't want to. And it's like, really? I don't know what that's going to do to you as a human being. Um, I love that the cat's behind you um, <laughs> joining us. Um, I, you know, it, it just, it, it will, I think that that's just going to make us less human and, and take away aspects of our humanity. And that just to me is, is, is really frightening. I agree. I, I think it was Marshall McLuhan who wrote about this in the, in the fifties or sixties when he talked about hot and cold mediums. He, yeah. He spoke about digital feudalism. And, you know, when I was a kid going to school, the teacher had to come and be like, everybody settle down. Hey, mm -hmm. stop talking. Knock yeah. it off. Like that was the battle, you know? Now it's it's everybody off their phones. Yeah. it's um, and You know what? It brings us back to Eliade where he says it's the felt presence of the other that reflects your humanity. Like there's yeah. things that you would never say to someone when you're face to face versus being in a forum or in, yeah. a, in a chat room or even on a Skype call. Like there's no consequences for your actions right. when you're this far away. And even though we have the appearance of connection, we don't have the human connection. And that's, yeah. it's the illusion of connection in a yeah. sort and, of way. And, and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, Sherry Turkle's done some great work on this. Uh, one of her, her more recent books is called Alone Together. Mm. Um, and it's about how we're, we're, we're alone together, right? I mean, I'm sitting here alone in my office with the door closed, but I'm together with you here online. <laughs> now, is that together? I, I, you know, it is to some degree, but um, I, I think you're right. It, it just, it, it just, it, it changes the dynamic of, of who we are as human beings. And it, and it, and I think it has contributed to, a more and more divisive society and a, a, a society that is increasingly more angry and violent. And we see people settling things in, in, in violent and angry ways rather than, than having discussions because maybe they just don't know how. Um, and that is the only way that they know how to solve a problem is, is through through violence. I mean, we see it a lot in the big cities, right? Not even in the big cities. Um, I mean, we've got a, a gun violence problem in the area where I live here in Virginia. Um, every day, it seems like on the news, it's another, there's another shooting. Um, and it's just, what is going on? This is the way that people are learning to deal with each other. I think it's, now that you say that, it, I've often thought that violence and, and, anger are a reaction to loneliness and that would make sense if we are so disconnected like you it's your soul longing to be connected with something like itself to see itself in the other or 
to at least feel, feel the gaze upon you or hear the words bounce off of you or look into the eyes of someone you may have a relationship with if you can say the right thing, you know, like all of that magic, all of that potential. And, and I, I think it brings to the forefront the idea, the solution is that maybe we're not individuals, maybe we're one organism. And when we're separated from other parts of ourselves, it's like the right hand, literally not knowing what the left hand is doing. So how can yeah. you make any sense of that? No, I, I think that's a really interesting idea of, of us being one organism. And, and I mean, you see a lot of that through a lot of the writing that we're talking about. I mean, from the middle ages, right up till now, um, this, you know, it reminds me of the theories of, of, of Adam and Eve having originally been one one being, right? And that they were split into male and female and are always looking to reunite, to reform the whole. Um, I find that a really interesting idea in the Genesis texts and the Genesis commentary about them. But I, I you know, it, 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 it just, I, I think I sent you this in a text one day and you, and you answered me. Um, there's a, there's a great, uh, line from, from D.H. Lawrence um, is an essay that he wrote that's called We Need One Another. Um, and it just, it, it, that's really just what it comes down to. We need one another. We really do. You, you, you can't, I don't think, live alone without any contact with other human beings and survive. Now, granted, there are some tribes that that do it, they don't have contact with the outside world, but they still have contact with each other. Um, I mean, there was the story recently of that that man in the tribe in, in uh, South America, I believe. I think I've got the story sitting here on my desk somewhere. Just a couple of weeks ago, who died, who is the last surviving member of this tribe, um, and he and he has died. He had no name, and and uh, they said they say he lived in a hole most of his life, but. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. It, it's just that connection between the human to human connection, whether that's whether that's a physical connection or a spiritual connection. Here we are with mind body again. I think we need both, right? Um, I mean, you know, I, I would love to see you in person and go out and and you know have a drink and sit and talk and actually be close together in the same space. Um, but I feel nonetheless that we have a connection because we have an intellectual and a spiritual connection without that physical connection. Can you have one without the other? I, I, I don't know. Um, and I don't know what that means about changing the nature of us as, as humans. I think we share... We share a we have a shared experience in that the love for reading and the love for some of these ideas about spirituality. And I think that those can be things that bring people together. I, I can only imagine our connection would be even deeper had we sit down and we were having these meetings one on one. I, mm. I think that there's a lot more information that would exchange, even if it was just, you know, the the physical eye contact right. or the the laughing together or the wiping of tears when things got sad, you know, or, or that was a great idea. Just, just a, that exchange of pheromones maybe. Yeah. But I think that there's something to be said and that, that in itself is an experience. I think that a poor substitute for that shared experience 
can be the shared experience of reading together or mm-hmm. or listening to a story together or interpreting something together because at least then you're of one mind or working as one together yeah I, I, in the last couple of days I, I I found out that one of my uh mentors when I was in graduate school had had passed oh, um, John John O'Malley who was a Jesuit uh, scholar, Jesuit priest, um, died at 95. I, I hadn't been in touch with him in many years, but he was incredibly important to me when I was working on my doctoral dissertation because he was just such a generous human being. It was just, and it's funny because in all the obituaries, that's all that keeps being mentioned is about how generous he was. And he was, uh, he, he, he didn't start his own scholarship until he was in his early sixties. Um, and he ended up writing, some of the more important books on, on the early Jesuits. And um, he invited me to come up to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he was and, and granted me library privileges to the library so I could work in there. And he would answer my, 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 my emails and my regular mail when I had probably what were really silly questions, um, but he was always willing to, to, to respond. And there was a connection there that um, I wouldn't give away. I mean, it was it was really important. I mean, you know, but nonetheless, if I had seen him today, I, he probably wouldn't remember me. Um, but that's that doesn't bother me necessarily, because his, it, it, you know, I, I I tell students this story, and 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 forgive me for for this sort of peripheral journey, but. Um, when I started college, I was at Fordham University in the Bronx. Uh, one of the few Jews at a Catholic university it was <laughs> quite interesting. And I had a priest for a Western Civ class, Father Sweeney. Father Sweeney was tough as nails. Oh, my God, this guy was tough. And, um, I mean, he was old school the whole way. And... The class met Monday, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, eight o'clock in the morning. And he used to come in. I sat in the front row. He used to come in and he would lecture and he wore a collar. And he had at the time, this is 1981, he had bought or somebody had gotten him a pocket calculator that had an alarm in it. And so he had the alarm set for 10 minutes to the hour because that's when class ended. And if he was mid-sentence and that alarm went off, he stopped because that was the end of class. And I sat in the front row so I would hear it because it was right in his pocket. So it was interesting. I, I, I worked really hard in that class. And um, at one point, he had realized that everybody wasn't doing the reading. We were freshmen. And he said, if you're not going to do the reading, we're going to have to quiz every class. And he let it go for about two or three more classes. And then he realized people weren't doing the reading. And we had a quiz every class at the beginning of class for the rest of the semester. And when I when I think about that now, think back on that, yeah, it was a pain in the neck for us as students. But then I think about it from the other side of the desk now. He had to grade those <laughs> every class. <laughs> so I wrote a paper on Cardinal Richelieu. I still remember this. And I worked really hard on this paper. And I submitted it, and I got it back from him, and I think I got a B. And I was disappointed. So I went in to go see him during his office hour, 
And I can remember sitting in his office with him, and he went over that paper with me with a fine tooth comb. He explained every comma mistake that I had made and what it was. And just, I mean, it was just, it was meticulous. And I remember at the end, he paused and he said to me, he says, you, you thought it was a better paper. And I said, well, yeah. He said, you, you thought it deserved an A. And I said, well, yeah. He said, A means perfect. A means I have nothing else to say. Okay. <laughs> so I write my final paper. I submit it. We go in for the final exam, which he has told us already we would never be able to finish in the time given. So as soon as we sit down, we have to start writing in the blue books. I don't know they still use blue books. <laughs> um, so we did that. We went in, sat down. He gave us the exam. We all started writing. And as I was writing, he was walking around the room handing back the final papers. And I remember he came to my desk and he lifted the corner of the blue book and slid the paper underneath. And I'm writing, writing, writing. And I, the curiosity got the best of me. And for a second, I just stopped and I picked my blue book up to see. And all that was written on the paper was a red letter A in a circle. <laughs> and there wasn't a word. Because to him, A meant perfect. A means I have nothing else to say. And that was 41 years ago. And I have embraced that as being a part of my own teaching. A means perfect. A means I have nothing else to say. So much so that over the years, I now have these pins, these A pins. <laughs> if you get a solid A on a paper, which is rare, they get a pin. And I tell this story. And then, of course, it becomes everybody wants a pin. But it is rare. It does not happen. Um, now, the connection that I had with him was incredibly important. And I was so sorry that I never kept in touch with him. I tried to get a hold of him years later after he had retired. He'd become ill. He was living in the Jesuit housing at Fordham. I reached out. I never heard. And then a couple of years later, I tried to reach out again, and he had passed. But I, I always remembered um, there was there's a great scene in The Paper Chase. Do you know the, the, the Paper Chase, the TV show? Well, it was a film first and then a TV show uh, about first year about law school. I've heard of it, but I've never seen yeah. it. Yeah. John Houseman plays the professor. Um, and at the end of the first season, it only ran for about three seasons, but critically acclaimed. At the end of the first season, um, the student who has been working so hard um, for King's, Professor Kingsfield's class, and just he will do, it's just working night and day for Kingsfield and trying to please him. And um, at the end of the first season, it's the end of the, it's the end, the semester ends, the next semester begins. And the student goes into the building and the elevator is closing and he grabs the elevator and opens it. And Kingsfield is standing in the elevator. And so he gets into the elevator with Kingsfield and he turns to Kingsfield and he says, Professor Kingsfield, I just wanted you to know, I really enjoyed your class last semester. And Kingsfield goes, Oh, that's 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 very fine. And he pauses and he turns and he says, what was your name again? You know, I don't think that I mean, Father Sweeney wouldn't have remembered me. Father O'Malley did not remember me, but they made such great impacts on my life that I remember them. And I think in some ways that keeps them alive.
I don't know where I'm going with this. No, without a doubt. I don't know why I went down this road and where you 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 somehow opened the gate. I don't yeah. know what you did, but there it's you go. It's a great story. You know, it's it's a phenomenal story. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can see the I look at it as a journey, like especially for young men. And I can't speak to being a young woman. I have a daughter and I, I want to help shape her life. And I hope that she can take from these similar stories. But I think there's a journey there from seeing something that you're not quite sure of. Maybe you're a little bit afraid of, you know, it's almost like the mystic tradition. It's almost like being an encounter with a godlike figure. Cause when you're a young man and you see an authority figure, that person has a, an incredible amount of power over you. They may not even know it. Yeah. And so here you are trying to walk in their footsteps, just like maybe on the beach when somebody carried somebody and you, you pour your heart out and you do something and you are, you're, you're shunned away, or maybe you think you're shunned away, mm. but then you, and then you re-encounter them. Like you going and saying, you know what? You didn't have to go to Dr. Sweeney and, and challenge the grade, but you did. I'm sure that wasn't yeah. an easy thing to do. No. And then you sit in there and then you have this person whom you're, somewhat afraid of and then they explain to you in a in, in not only a caring way but like in a brotherly or a mentor way or a yeah. divine way. you can almost say it's a divine lesson happening there because a divine yeah. lesson would mean it's something that you carried with you forever you know like i, I think there's a lot of it's a first off it's a beautiful story and i hope that people can listen to this and f maybe they have mentors in their life but they can find the divinity in life. I think that's a story yeah. about the divine nature of life. I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it's about finding the moments and the people that that are able to 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 do that for you. Um, and I think for for I think many of us hope that we can fill that role for others. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we 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 want to. You know, I I I mean, I would love to. I don't know whether or not I do. Um, I mean, I have students who come back to me many, many years later, quoting things that came out of my mouth. And I'm always stunned um, because it seems like, you know, I, I didn't even think they were listening to me. But sure enough, something is stuck with them the same way that what Father Sweeney said to me is stuck with me, um, which is interesting. I mean, I've got something in my syllabi that 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 talk about, um, you know, late papers and and how grades are knocked off for late papers, because if deadlines weren't important, it wouldn't begin with dead. Um, and I can't tell you how many students over the years have come back to me and have sent me notes with that line because they remember that. <laughs> you know, it's uh, if you look at it from this angle, the conversation that you are having about about, uh, you know, Dr. Sweeney and, and having these mentors in your life. And then recent and you just said, I hope that I have that effect on students. I don't think it's too far, too far fetched to believe that Dr. Sweeney and his colleagues were sitting in an office having the exact same conversation that you're having yeah, now. You might be right. You might be, you know, you might be right. Like, think about how beautiful that is. Like yeah. here they are. I hope that one day I can influence somebody the way this person influenced me. And you're doing it without even knowing it probably. Yeah. I mean, you know? I, I, I would hope that somewhere, somehow, um, you know, he is, is hears this. And knows how much of an impact he had on me because I wanted to tell him, but I, it was too late. I couldn't. And that's why. And, I, and I've told this story to students as well. And I tell them for that very reason, don't wait to, to thank the people who are really important in your life. Um, don't wait to, to acknowledge your mentors 
and their significance because it'll be too late. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about that cycle of mentors and that cycle of learning. Like, you know, you can become in a sense, the person that inspired you most. And in doing so, you continue that path for other people to follow. Like it's in some way, you're the, you are the lighthouse that's calling out to those in the fog that may be lost. And for every one of those you reach, you build another lighthouse or, you know, on another port. It's like, it's like Junipero Cerro, just walking up the coast and building monasteries. You know, in a way, that's what you're doing, man. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, w- one of the things that I did when I was younger is, I, I mean, I did not plan to go on and get a PhD in English literature and become a professor. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I was first generation college. Um, neither of my parents had gone to college. And um, I mean, I started out as an undergraduate political science major. I wanted to go to law school. That's all I ever wanted to do. And what I finally realized I wanted to do was, as so many of us do, is to make a difference, right? Yeah. Well, how can I make a difference the best way that I know how? And for, through a variety of, of experiences that first year in, in undergrad, I realized that law school was not the way that it was going to happen for me. I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't discover the fact that I was going to be a, a, an English professor until many years later. But I had realized that that wasn't it. And that I was going to need to look elsewhere. Um, And I think that for a lot of folks today um, and a lot of students, again, the population I'm around the most, um, they're hesitant to take those chances because it's 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 too um, it's too unsure. It's too unclear. It's too uncertain. Um, It's easier to come in and know I'm going to major in this. And that's what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, at, at, at my particular institution, we don't actually allow them to declare their major until the spring of their sophomore year. We don't want them to declare it before then. Um, we want them to, 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 to play the field and look at what's around. Um, you know, and I tell prospective parents, I tell, you know, most college students change their majors three times. Um, so, you know, the major that, that, that your kid has, it was funny, I was talking to a parent during our opening week. And, and I said that, and she said, yeah, she said, my kid changed his major on the way here today. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he was going to be a physics major. And now he wants to do graphic design. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's going to happen, you know? Um, but we, we, we are, we're uncomfortable with uncertainty. And so too many people, I think, get locked into something that they end up regretting just in the name of, this is what I'm going to do. And, and, you know, yes, I've got it all figured out. Um, you know, the, the, the number of people who are going each day to, to wall street and are on the train reading Shakespeare tells me something, you know, now, yeah, I mean, you can be well-rounded to be sure. But I, I can't tell you how many folks I've met in, in my lifetime who've regretted the path that they took because it was either the safe path or the one that someone else expected them to take. And it does take, I think, a lot of guts to, to you know, let's go frost, right, to take the road less taken. Um, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not easy. You know, it's not an easy walk on the road less taken. Yeah. It, sometimes I feel 
Like we've gotten to like this intellectual dark ages where everything is told to you. This is the path to become a millionaire. This is the path to do this. But then, you know, if we get back to King Arthur, you know, they would, they would, they would go and cut their own path to find the grail. And that's everyone had their own way to get into the forest, to the dark, wherever they thought was the darkest part was the spot that you should start at. And like, that's where you find, you know, and and where you stumble is where you find the treasure, right? Maybe, Maybe this idea of, of education be, should be to become uncertain instead of, going to school to become certain about something. Maybe you should be going to school mm. until you find something you're uncertain about. And yeah. in a way, I think we're there. If you look at what's happening in the education system throughout, you know, at least in the United States, it seems to be stagnant. And when it becomes stagnant, that means there's a real opportunity for change. I think, I think that might yeah. be something there. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hope so. Um, I, I fear that, that it may not be because we're so focused on vocations and finding your vocation and so so many um institutes of higher learning i mean so many colleges and universities have been turned into pseudo votech schools <laughs> you know just preparing people for a career in x um, i used to joke with with parents at admission events that you know at, at liberal arts institutions you know we're not teaching kids how to fix air conditioners if you want to do that you know, we can send you someplace where they do that. That's not what we do. Um, and then one year, a parent came up to me afterward and said, I fix air conditioners for a living. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and now I don't use that anymore at, at admissions events. Oh, I felt horrible. Um, I had a backtrack. But um, but I think that's true. You know, so many people are looking for, as you say, you know, what's going to make them their millions. Yeah. Um, I mean, I run into a lot of students who, you know, well, what do you want to do? Well, you know, I, I, I want to basically I want to make money. Um, <laughs> you know, do you have a passion about anything? Not really. Um, and, and I mean, to me, those are the, the the kind of the saddest human beings who are the ones who have no passion. What about the ones that make millions of dollars and still have no passion? Like they, they yeah. talk about an emptiness. So you yeah. can see it in their eyes sometimes. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and, and it, you know, we certainly have, you know, a, a, a sizable number of people now who are just obscenely wealthy and um, don't seem to know what to do with the rest of their lives. I mean, I think it's interesting and I wrote about this in the chapter on greed in the book on, on sin, um, that there's this, this group that formed of these uh, very wealthy folks, including Bill Gates and, and Buffett, um, who, are, who are dedicated to giving away a lot of their money to philanthropic groups. Um, and they have made a commitment um, to do that. But on the, on, on the, the other side of the coin, you know, when you are interested in building rockets to send people to space and, and for what, just so <laughs> I, I, I don't get that, you know, it's, it's, it would be one thing if we were doing, if you were doing that in order to advance the knowledge of humanity, but it's not their, their, their vacation trips. 
I think that their plans is to mine asteroids. And if you look at it from that angle, you go, oh, it kind of makes sense. We're going to Mars? Or are we building this thing that can, that can yeah. bring gold in from a meteor? And make more <laughs> money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's sometimes when I talk to my daughter, like, you know, the idea of some pop culture person will come up or some Kardashian or something. And, you know, I'm a big fan of just being like, oh, God, I feel so sorry for him. And she's yeah. like, she'll look at me like, dude, dad, they have everything. And I'm like, I know, isn't that horrible? Like, look at that. I'm yeah. so please, gorgeous. I'm, I'm so sorry you have to see this. And this look of confusion on their face, like, what? And I'm like, well, well, look, I mean, they, they've given up everything so that they can have this illusion of everything. You know, it's, yeah. it just makes me so sad. And, you know, in, in some ways, I think we could, we, I know that there's so much money that has gone to people in the commercial industry. And in some ways, I'm happy to see people be rewarded for their hard work and re rewarded for their sacrifice. However, I, I am always a little bit offended at the way they're portrayed to people because it gives off this false illusion. And even people that, you know, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to get to a level of such wealth that you become a different person. And mm. how many people have lost relationships or how many people don't talk to their kids because this thing called wealth has got in yeah. the way. And now you don't know who really, Hey, does this person like me for me or my story? Right. Or, right. You're I got to imagine. Yeah. I got to imagine at some point in time, you would be suspicious of everybody around you. And I don't yeah. know that that's a recipe for success. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, quite honestly, you know, the, the only, the only reason I'd be selling my soul is to play the guitar a la Robert Johnson. You know, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I don't, but it seems like a lot of people that their soul is up for sale. Cause they have nothing. It seems, why is that? Why do you think that there's that hole there? It, it is a hole. I think it's, it's a hole again in, in our spiritual nature and the inability to really understand what it is to be a human being. Um, because, you know, I mean, look, look at it. This, I mean, if you, you know, literally if you were to give up your soul you would just become a body um and what is that i mean it's, it's funny that you raised the kardashians we were watching tv last night and and a commercial came on hulu that apparently the kardashians have a new show on hulu and i said oh my god you've got it people are still watching this <laughs> why i don't it baffles me i i can honestly say i've never watched an episode of that show and I don't yeah. say that to be superior. Right. I say that because I just don't understand why anybody would. Um, it, I, I don't it get seems it. Like a, yeah, it seems like a level of decadence. You know, yeah. I, and it, th that brings up the questions. Like when we talk about trying to fill a hole with materialistic goods, do you think that that is something technology is adding to when you spoke about the kids and they're like, they have to be, they have to be getting, so, I, I know when I'm on my phone that I'm getting so many ads and I'm getting oh, yeah. on some level that's manipulating me. It's changing the way I think when, when you look at the world through this screen versus the world through this screen, it's a whole different world. But we went through the same discussion yeah. with TV. Yep. Right. I mean, I mean, you, talk, you mentioned Marshall McLuhan earlier. I mean, you know, go back to that early media research. I mean, there were the same issues when it came to television. It's just, it seems more, um, just more, it, it, seems, it seems exacerbated by the fact that 
now it's not a matter of I have to go and sit down in front of a television, but I carry this thing around <laughs> in my pocket. Right. And, you know, I've got this 24-7. And as much as I try to disconnect myself from this damn thing, I got to I got to admit that I, I'm I'm connected to it, too. I mean, I, I went to go talk to a class this morning on the other side of campus. Now, it's a good thing I brought my phone with me because we now have have instituted the two-factor authentication on our computer system where it sends a code to your phone, which you then have to put in to be allowed in. If I hadn't had my phone with me, I wouldn't have been able to get into the system. Something's wrong with that. Yeah, it's an, it's it's become the same way that you can close your eyes and use a cane to tap on an object and feel that object. And then that cane becomes an extension of you. So too has that phone become an extension of us on a cognitive level. It's yeah. like we almost need that thing to bang around so we can understand or interpret the world around us. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure that, you know, you, I, and I'm sure a lot of listeners know plenty of people who are, who, who really do use the phone as if it's a, an extension of their physical being. It's another appendage. Yeah. How many people have avatars and live in are beginning to see themselves in this world of the metaverse? I have enough trouble with myself in the real verse. Never <laughs> mind the metaverse. I don't, I don't I think I want to live in the metaverse, though. That's not a place I think I want to live. Um, it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem interesting to me. Mm -mm. It, it, it seems too artificial and removed from the real. You know, as much as so much of what we deal with on a daily basis in the real world stinks and is miserable and we don't like it and it's unpleasant, that's exist. That's what human existence is. It's part of being a human. And, and you know, this idea of, of, of getting us to the point of the singularity where we can download our consciousness to a computer, for what purpose? I don't get what the end is of that. I mean, I, you know, if you're somebody like Ray Kurzweil who's going to live forever, then I suppose, you know, it's it's so that it can be saved for the, the next version of you that is a, is a healthier body. I, I, I don't know. I don't want my consciousness in somebody else's body. Yeah. I, talk I, about I, being... I don't I don't. I'd have to read more about that myself. I mean, I've read plenty of it, and I still don't understand it. And I've read a lot of Ray Kurzweil's work, um, especially the earlier work. The, the later work is a little out there. Um, but the earlier work, I mean, Age of Spiritual Machines and things like that, um, is really kind of interesting. But, you know, once he declared that he was going to live forever, I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live forever. Yeah. Do you... What I have heard this brings up an interesting point. It seems to me that there are only one can there's only insights that come to you when you're on death's door, when you're knocking on the door. I I've read tons of biographies about people and they talk about in their in their last dying days. You know, no one ever says, I wish I had more money or I wish I would have worked longer hours. You know, it's yeah. it's always I wish I would have been a better father. I wish I would have been a better lover. Right. And I think that while you can think about those things now, you don't truly understand the weight of those and things that I can't even think of until you come to the end of your time. 
Do you think that that is, I have, I've heard people debate that like, that's just wish wash and, and silliness, but what is your take on that? No, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that's the curiosity of, of, of humanity is that we can't see things forward that way. We, we can only see them backwards. It's yeah. kind of, you know, to, to, to look back and regret. I mean, you know, what, what's that, that line about the, the saddest phrase is, is I not, not, I, I, could have, but I should have, or, or mm. right. I, you know, it, it, it's just this, the regrets that we have about what we haven't done. And I don't know if part of that is just on the nature of our being reflective beings, but it just, there's a, there's a, you know, we're, we're constantly battling the past and the future. It's a constant battle, right? I mean, our, our, our memories of things, are looming large and really I think dominate as far as looking forward. And sometimes for some people, as we were talking about earlier, it dominates to the point where they just are unable to look forward. They're yeah. just, they, they literally live in the past. Right. Um, and for people like that, I mean, it's just, that's a boring existence. It really is. Yeah, I once heard that depression is being trapped in the past and anxiety is being trapped in the future. And yeah. if, I think we've all probably been trapped in both of those places. And the only right. way to get out of it is just to enjoy the present. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, Dr. David Solomon, my friend, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy this. And I, I do too, sir. It's so much fun. And I, 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 I love we we have the ability to go wherever we want and we have the freedom to do it. And, and it's so <laughs> and much fun. Do, and we do go everywhere, don't we? <laughs> yeah. But ultimately we end up at the destination of learning. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. And so where I've noticed that you have a new link and I put it in the show notes, I think it's where you can buy your book, the seven deadly sins from an independent site. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. I put that one in there and people, right. I highly recommend going and checking out the book, seven deadly sins. It's a great book. I, I learned a lot. It is, it, it looks like Carl Jung did all the footnotes because there's a whole book of footnotes in there and it's so well-researched and I, I can tell the hard work that's put in there. What was the title of the other book that you've written? The, well, I, I, my first book was a book on the, on the medieval Bible. It's called the Glossa Ordinaria. Um, it's a very academic work. Um, and then I've written two monographs on, on higher education. And then the Seven Deadly Sins book, and and upcoming, probably next year, a book on angels and demons and pop culture. Right, right oh, with my wife. So that's going to be so fun. That's going to be so amazing. <laughs> if you need someone to proofread it, or or if you want to give someone a copy, then sign it. You know, I'd probably be the guy to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> and and where can people find? I'd like to end off the conversation with, what do you got coming up? Where can people find you? And what are you sure. excited about? Yep. So websites, David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N.com. Um, my books and my blog and my lectures and everything is up there. Um, excited about coming up. Um, real busy with the semester here and things are moving along and, and really thrilled that I hope fall is coming because I'm tired of the, the really hot summer that we've had here in Virginia. I don't know what the weather's like there in Hawaii at the moment, but it is still really horribly humid here so i'm waiting for for fall to actually come in earnest the, the, the leaves have started falling in my backyard so i'm i'm optimistic <laughs> me too i i'm looking forward to the future and our future conversations and 
changing the world and maybe maybe getting to talk to my friend David Solomon or as I call him Mr. Sweeney the Jesuit um, <laughs> we're coming against it so that's what we have today ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for your time and we'll see you again next Tuesday taking a moment to hang out with me in the true life podcast i truly appreciate it if you're taking some time to listen to this whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way i truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart additionally i would like to try to inspire everyone the world is a crazy place and if you listen to your heart and you take some chances i really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine 
I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.